Hello, I am Philip Kennedy. Thank you for downloading this podcast of the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. We hope you enjoy listening to this. For more information about our programs, please visit www.nyuad.nyu.edu slash institute. All right. Yes, thanks for coming tonight. Um, in this talk, I focus on the shifting racial position of Arab Americans over the course of 100 plus years of U.S. history. It is well known that race has been a fundamental organizing principle in American society, if not the most important one. Race shapes the character of one's everyday life, one's physical safety while in public, one's access to constitutional rights, one's chances for being hired and promoted, and even one's physical health. Building a society on the principle of white supremacy was foundational for the U.S., as we know, based on policies like Native American genocide and renewal, slavery, Jim Crow, the ghettoization of Asian and Latinos, their eventual bar or deportation in large numbers, and the restriction of naturalized citizenship to whites. These days, much as some in the U.S. like to say we have achieved a post-racial society, all you must do is look around, and it is evident that we have not. Race, <clears throat> excuse me, race scholars point out that while surveys show that white attitudes towards people of other races have improved, and of course, there's other attitudes that matter, uh, these changes, attitude changes have produced very little change in the social structures of the United States and inequality and are certainly not the case for Arab and Muslim Americans. Race-making projects rely on two major components that work in tandem. They have ideological components that work on the cognitive level, such as stereotypes, images, books, films, to construct and define who a people are. And they have structural components that rely on actions, laws, policies, and human practices. For example, when certain types of people are barred from living in certain places or working in certain jobs, there's an always, these actions are always accompanied by ideological strategies and images and narratives that explain why these actions are right. Today, I will recount the Arab American story using this sociological language of ideology and structure. I will argue that Arab Americans were once structurally positioned as marginal whites. However, they began shifting on the color line in the late 1960s when they began experiencing widespread ideological defamation and structural controls evident in stereotyping, government surveillance, deportations, and hate crimes. These processes have been ignored by U.S. scholars of race, and I talk later about why that is. The most striking element of my argument is that I tie Arab-American racialization from white to person of color, not to the domestic nation-building project of white supremacy, but to a parallel U.S. global project of supremacy that commenced after World War II and demonized Arabs anywhere in the world as uncivilized, lesser human beings in the interest of silencing dissent of U.S. foreign policies. I further argue that although Arab-American history with race is different from that of South Asians, the racial project that ensnared Arab-Americans was eventually expanded to include South Asians via its ideological extension to Muslims, deployment of this socially construction notion of a Middle Easterner, and its visible representation as a brown terror threat. Today, this convergence manifests itself in government policies and micro and macro practices that in an undifferentiated way affect 
target Arabs, South Asians, and Muslims, and persons who are perceived to be members of these groups, like Sikhs, right? Sikhs are a major victim of hate crimes that are intended to be directed at Arabs and Muslims. Exploring this history is important because it takes down the widespread myth used even by scholars today that Arab and Muslim Americans became racialized only after 9-1-1. This myth has a number of problems. First, it does not explain why all Arabs and Muslims were immediately held accountable for the actions of 19 brown-bodied men they did not know. We know that all people are held accountable for the actions of a few only after they have been racialized. Second, interestingly enough, it blames Arabs and Muslims for their own racialization, a common feature of white supremacy. Finally, it hides the relationship between the racialization of Arabs and Muslims and the United States empire, and by intent promotes a lack of human concern for the lives and deaths of Arabs and Muslims anywhere in the world. It is a global project. In addition, the study of Arab-American racialization is important because it provides insights into how groups that are considered white can change race, the formation of Arab-American panethnicity, uh, the racialized feeling of being invisible, and the 1980s instigation of the quest for a census category for Arab-Americans in order to make their experiences legible. Finally, much, much research on Arab Americans has focused on the ideological dimensions of their racialization. It's about the films, the movies, the textbooks, the stereotypes. And these make for very graphically interesting talks. So I am apologize to you. I have one slide <laughs> for my talk today. is not graphically pleasing because I'm trying to shift our focus from the ideology and the stereotypes and the images to the structural practices of the U.S. government and civil society institutions, which have received much less attention. And there are a few available graphics for these uh, processes. Um, this talk is based on an article that's about to be published. Uh, I'm attempting to correct a lot of errors being made by scholars. Uh, I want to explain how Arabs can be raced and not be poor because the United States being raced is tied to being poor. Um, and I have another piece just published that talks about race and Muslim Americans, and I can address that in Q&A. That's a different talk. I'll begin with the early 20th century, when Arabs began migrating to the U.S. in large numbers between 1880 and 1920. By this time, most of the macro-structural practices of white supremacy had been completed, while others were still unfolding. Some 95,000 persons from areas known today as Syria, Lebanon, and Palestine, Israel, uh, with smaller numbers from Yemen and Iraq, migrated to the U.S. in this period. The majority of them were Christian, but at least 10,000 were Muslim and Jews. Collectively, they were known at the time as Syrians. They lived across the United States, were highly urban, but also lived in small towns. And we know from studies of this early group um, that they experienced the structural benefits of marginal whiteness, although perhaps less so in the Jim Crow South. They worked in manufacturing. Uh, they built the U.S. cars, the Lebanese and the Yemenis, especially early when Ford Motor Company opened, were its main workers. Uh, they worked in textiles. They were often unionized. But they were most distinctive for their specialized niche in trade, whether it's long-distance peddlers 
or urban peddlers. Many Syrian traders achieved upward economic mobility from this line of work, something that would not have been possible if they did not have the freedom of movement and the right to ownership that they possessed as marginal whites, and these rights were denied to people of color. A smaller group of Yemenis, about whom relatively little has been written, embarked on a more modest trajectory as Ford factory workers and ship captains. That's like a really fascinating history. We have yet to the Yemeni ship captains to explore. The migration of Arabs was severely curtailed in 1921 and 24 when immigration quotas were implemented in the United States after sustained nativist movement like we're having right now. Uh, small quotas of 100 immigrants per, punch, per country were a marginal benefit afforded to marginal whites, while Asians experienced a total ban in the 1917 Asia Bard Zone. In this early era, Arab Americans established a significant, significant number of social, cultural, and religious institutions, churches, mosques, social clubs, newspapers, etc. Although they faced prejudice and discriminatory behavior from dominant whites, they were not forced to live in urban ghettos and their residential and social lives were interwoven with members of other groups considered white. Indeed, U.S. Census data showed that the children of these Arab immigrants had high rates of marriage with Irish and German Americans. Um, although Christians, Muslims, and Druze had varying experiences colored by their relationship to the dominant religion, for the most part, as we know, as far as we know, all benefited from marginal whiteness. Indeed, some Arab Americans had accumulated significant social capital and wealth, enabling interventions with high-level government officials concerning homeland matters and the hiring of legal teams to challenge efforts to deny them naturalized U.S. citizenship. While Arabs were considered Caucasian by ethnologists and therefore technically able to naturalize as U.S. citizens, court clerks and judges sometimes denied their applications for naturalization under the pretext that Arabs were not white. When blocked, Arabs fought to claim whiteness, as did South, as did South Asians, who were also blocked and perceived as variously night white and non-white. Only a small number of Syrian cases were litigated in the courts, but the historian Galtieri showed that when they were, judges used a range of reasons for either rejecting or accepting Arab applications for white, Arab claims of whiteness, including science, common understandings of whiteness, and the legal intent of U.S. law, which limited citizenship to whites. Matters of the legal racial status of Syrians were settled for a while when a panel of federal appellate court judges ruled in Dow versus the U.S. that George Dow, a Syrian, was eligible for naturalization because generally received opinions supported idea that the people from that part of Asia were white persons. It is highly significant for the racial positioning of Arabs and their future migration that Arab regions and modern-day Iran were not included in the 1917 Asia-Bard zone, except for small, slight, you know, it was done by latitude and longitude, so it's kind of raw. The Bard zone did include small pieces of modern-day Saudi Arabia, Somalia, and Yemen. Galtieri concluded, while many scholars have argued that Syrians emerged on the white side of the color line from these cases, much evidence points away, away from whiteness and towards a conceptualization of Syrians as in-between or not quite white. Um, there were other challenges to Arab whiteness. Um, 1940, Majid Ramzi Sharif was denied an immigrant visa because he was not white. 
The Bureau of Immigration Appeals ruled that Sharif was white because, quote, so much of the Near East has contributed to the development of Western civilization of Greece and Rome, and it was never intended that Arabians be excluded from the group of white persons. Thus, historian Smith argued, historical and civilizational arguments convinced the Bureau of Immigration Appeals that whiteness is associated with Western civilization, and Western civilization includes the Arab world. And this idea, of course, as you know, has been dispensable, but it, it was believed at one time. Um, I'm going to briefly run through this because I'm going to argue that later South Asians have been brought into this larger war on terror racial project. Um, so I'm just going to say at that time, there was a very small migration of South Asians, mostly Punjabi Sikhs. Uh, they mainly went to the West Coast. They became farm laborers. Um, and again, indicative of their racial positioning, they tended to live among and marry uh, Mexicans, African-Americans, and Puerto Ricans. Um, I think, you know, the legal, a lot of scholars make a lot of, a lot of, a big deal, let's say, out of these legal cases. But I think that, you know, it's really not important, not more important than understanding that Arab Americans in this early period benefited from the perks that we're giving to white people. The much-touted premise that hard work and determination alone explain Arab-American success in this period must be challenged because it infers that the other groups lack these qualities, and it plays into white supremacy. Because Arab-Americans experienced the benefits of white privilege in this early area, their second generation prospered, and that fact continues to reveal, reveal itself forward in generations that came after World War II and the current generations. Um, if nothing else, the Arab-American experience demonstrates the difference in outcomes between groups who are given a chance and those who are not. Furthermore, the available indicate evidence tells us that the overwhelming majority of Arabs, whether Christian, Muslim, or Jews, were able to naturalize as U.S. citizens. So there's some new articles coming out um, asserting that uh, Muslims were not able to naturalize. And I mean, I investigated this and it's not true. <laughs> People sent me dozens of naturalization certificates of um, Arab Muslims. So I'm going to move on to the next uh, 67 period, but I have to put a little history in the middle of that. So we know there are a lot of global changes after World War I and World War II, uh, the British and French colonization of the lands of former Syria, Greater Syria, the Cold War, the creation of the State of Israel and Palestine, forcing 700,000 Palestinians to flee. The U.S. emerges as a global superpower in this context, and it builds Cold War alliances with European-installed Arab monarchies, with Israel, with Iran, and Saudi Arabia. Um, and a lot of these alliances are aimed at monopolizing access to oil. The U.S. then begins to, it's decades of ongoing interventions in this part of the world, starting with the CIA-led coup of um, Iranian Premier Mossadegh in 1953, which was about oil. Um, so these U.S. and European interventions in the area that came to be called the Middle East gave birth to, you know, all sorts of anti-colonial and anti-imperial resistance movements, such as socialism, pan-Arabism, Ba'athism, nationalism, and a nascent Islamism. These narratives of resistance were given voice in the U.S. by post-World War II Arab immigrants 
that now included not only the relatives of earlier immigrants, but also highly skilled Arabs and students pursuing higher education. But it was the 1967 Israeli conquest of the rest of Palestine, as well as parts of Egypt, Lebanon, and Syria, and the U.S. government and mainstream media treatment of these events that mobilized Arab immigrants, Arab students, and Arab Americans into pan-ethnic political activism. Their goals were to challenge popular support for U.S. policies in the region by exposing the devastating impacts of these policies on civilians, which now included 300,000 more Palestinian refugees. Um, in the United States, these free speech activities were confronted head-on by U.S. government agencies and civil society organizations, whose objectives were to actively silence Arab Americans, censor information, curtail their efforts to organize, and deny them political voice. These actors intentionally deployed race and racialized constructions of Arabs as the ideological component of their strategy. They constructed a race-making narrative that Arabs were an inherent threat to the United States and were a barbarian people. A new racial project was launched, one tied not to U.S. domestic interests, but its global interests. And this project intersects in numerous ways with parallel historic white supremacy and patriarchy. The work of silencing Arab Americans required a strategy of social and political exclusion. So now I'm, I'm talking 67. Working at local and national levels, government and civil society organizations went to work using race as their strategy. They constructed Arab Americans as monolithically and essentially uncivilized beings with an inherent proclivity to violence and as persons whose lives had little value. No longer were Arabs persons who shared Western civilization. The Arab was first and foremost a threat to us. And of course, us is the other piece of the project that needs to be defined. The narratives deployed in this project were readily available. So if you know the work of Edward Said and Orientalism, you know that the narratives were available. The work of Ella Shohat about European narratives of Muslim threat in the 15th century that, that preceded the expulsion of Jews and Muslims from Spain. The narratives about Muslims and Arabs were available. Scholars of 67... Scholars of Arab Americans point to 67 as a watershed year. The 67 Israeli invasion and military occupation of Palestine was portrayed in the U.S. media as something with which Americans should identify and share joy. It was hailed as a victory of the civilized us over the barbaric them. Arab Americans reported steely negative portrayals of Arabs in the newspapers as backwards, defeated, incompetent, undeserving of controlling their own lands. Historian scholar, uh, historian Awad notes, quote, the shock for Arab Americans was not so much the defeat, but the way it was received in the West, and especially the United States, where strong derogatory racial overtones in the media toward the Arab contributed significantly, significantly for the first time to a growing political and ethnic awareness among Arab Americans. Israelis, on the other hand, were portrayed as civilized, destined, and forward-moving people. 
In this media framing, American Jews, who according to scholar Feldman, had only prior to this time, only moderate interest in Israel prior to this time, were now waging their own fight for racial inclusion. And so this became the way for American Jews who had been othered to kind of climb into whiteness. And for their part, U.S. evangelical Christians connected support for Israel with preservation of the Holy Land for white Christians to the detriment of indigenous Palestinian Christians. As you probably are well know, because this is a topic that's been written a lot about, a steady stream of racist anti-Arab films, television shows followed for decades, as well as racist portrayals in cartoons, textbooks, encyclopedias, thesauruses, video games, T-shirts, Halloween costumes. It was all over the place. These negative representations of Arabs had powerful impacts. By 1977, public opinion wrote, Opinion polls revealed that American attitudes towards Arabs were close to racist because the word race still could not be used for this group. (laughs) So they had to say close to racist. Um, The homogenizing and essentializing implicit in these representations meant that all Arabs should be understood as the same wherever they were, which produced hate crimes against Arab Americans whenever nationalist emotions were sparked by U.S. military engagement in the Arab world. When the U.S. military attacked Libya in 1986, Arab-American businesses in Dearborn, Michigan were destroyed, and five Arab students at Syracuse University were beaten up. Uh, During the 1991 Gulf War, the Arab-American Anti-Discrimination Committee documented 158 violent hate crimes, including arson, shooting, physical assaults. Anthropologist Nabil Abraham pointed out that the FBI showed very little interest in investigating these hate crimes, while on the other hand, it was quite actively surveilling and harassing them as terror threats, even though there had not been a single act of Arab terrorism. Ideological efforts to dehumanize Arabs were but one part of the project. At the level of practices, Arab Americans were policed by agents of civil society and government aimed at silencing their voices. This was the 1960s. It was not possible to deny Arab Americans the right to vote. Yet as Michelle Alexander has demonstrated in the new Jim Crow, there is more than one way to take away a people's right to vote. Structural operations took place to ensure that there would be few for whom Arab Americans could vote on matters they cared about, such as Palestine. Same today. (laughs) Nothing's changed here. as well as few who would ally with them on com- campaigns around displacement or r- death of Arab, Arab civilians. These operations included highly organized national and local efforts to keep Arab Americans out of progressive political coalitions, out of feminist organizations, excluding them from organized discussions of racism, excluding them from multicultural education and racial tolerance training. So even though it was evident that racializing was going on, they were not allowed to speak about it in the venues that mattered. Uh, These groups also established conditions such as political candidates would be considered dirty if they met with Arab Americans. And we know Hillary Clinton was one of these people, right, in the 1990s, but there are many, many, many more who returned money donated to them by Arab Americans um, because it was considered dirty money. And they were, these, group, these candidates were encouraged to even hold a press conference to say, 
I rejected this dirty Arab money. Um, so issues of concern to Arab Americans, especially Palestine and now Yemen, became poison for anyone aspiring to have a voice in the politics of the nation. What am I doing on time here? Okay. Jim Zogby, the founder of a number of Arab American organizations, summarized the environment as follows. From the moment Arab Americans began to advocate and at organize and advocate for causes we held dear, we were confronted by attacks. Our early efforts to bring our community into the mainstream of American political life were met with resistance and campaigns of pressure designed to make us radioactive. Political pressure was used to exclude us from government meetings, from coalitions, and political campaigns. They wrote reports that called us Arab propagandists, a made-up people, a creation of petrodollars, anti-Semites, and a subversive plot supporting Palestinian terrorists. Zagby itemizes a number of civil society inclusion, exclusions, including threats by, by groups to withdraw from the 20th anniversary of Dr. King's march on Washington, quote, if Arabs were included. In the latter case, major African-American organizations were split on the matter, and it was finally resolved in favor of Arab-Americans by Reverend Joseph Lowry and Reverend Jesse Jackson of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. Furthermore, throughout the 70s and 80s, Arab-American organizations and their leadership faced violence and threats of violence compromising their safety. So I have a list here of death threats and bombings of Arab-American organizations. Um, as it did with the civil rights movement and other opposition movements, the U.S. government worked actively to obstruct Arab-American civic and campus organizing through spying, FBI visits, wiretapping, surveillance, monitoring bank accounts, bogus arrests, and spurious efforts to deport naturalized U.S. citizens who were Arabs. It did this using multiple government agencies, the State Department, the CIA, the FBI, the Immigration Service, the National Security Agency, as well as local police agencies. Although Arab Americans were engaged in nonviolent free speech activities, the government framed its work in its reports as terrorism prevention. These operations began in 1967 and included FBI and INS interviews of Arab students who were threatened with deportation if they became active. Um, also, the government tried to stall the entry of Arabs into the country. Um, it deported them as needed. And it tried to delay their ability to become U.S. citizens. Government documents called Arab students who were organizers potential terrorists who were supplied with Arab money to conduct intelligence operations. What they were actually doing, according to a Justice Department report, was gathering information for organizational work on campuses that awakened the curiosity of Americans about the Middle East, the Palestine question, and U.S. foreign policy. That the Arab American narrative of Arab American terrorists was reported repeatedly in the newspapers. For example, a Washington Post article reported FBI concerns over Arab American links to the terrorist underground. And it supplied details of the success of their efforts. And I just found that I reread all of this material over the last nine months when I wrote it. I reread all of it and I got shocked by it, really. For example, in the last quarter of 1972, 2,074 Arab students were to be deported. 
This is all like this hidden history, right? This is shocking. Uh, 41 stu- other Arab students left the country on their own, and 68 were up for deportation proceedings. So you talk about a chill on free speech, 1972. Um, these government actions um, were first uncovered when attorney Abdin Jabara sued the FBI for spying on him. As the case unfolded, Jabara learned of NSA surveillance that began shortly after the 67 war. His telephone conversations were recorded. His home and businesses were surveilled. His bank records collected. His neighbors were interviewed. Uh, there are other chill cases. Uh, Palestinian-American Sami Israel received a 15-month prison sentence in Israel for legal solidarity activities in the U.S. Uh, I remember when the U.S. government was trying to deport leading Palestinian activists in the United States who had become naturalized citizens. The LA-8 case, you know the LA-8 case? Uh, After two years of surveillance, wiretapping, and videotaping that showed no evidence of illegal activity, federal and local agents arrested, chained, imprisoned, and attempted to deport seven Palestinians and a Kenyan under charges that kept changing. First, it was supporting a foreign terrorist organization, then it was supporting a communist organization. Shortly after these arrests, the LA Times revealed the existence of a Reagan administration contingency plan called Alien Terrorists and Undesirables. I have a copy of this. It's real that detailed emergency measures to be implemented to detain and imprison legal aliens from eight Arab countries and Iran in a detention facility in Oakdale, Louisiana. The message of all of these efforts was clear. Arab Americans who engaged in free speech activities that challenged U.S. policies in the Middle East would be monitored and publicly tired, and if not U.S. citizens, would be vulnerable to deportation. So racial projects, as we know them, unfold in specific historical contexts. The anti-Arab racial project expanded when new narratives and sources of resistance emerged to U.S. imperial policies in the Middle East. When Islamists overthrew the U.S.-backed Shah of Iran in 79, who was known for running a torture regime, political Islam rose in prestige as an effective anti-imperial strategy. This shift in the narrative of contestation to U.S. policies required parallel changes in the racial project. Now the people made up to be understood as terror threats was broadened from Arabs to Muslims, and it was given a new name, Middle Easterners. Um, this may be a side point, but I just have to have it. At the same time, the Reagan administration actively deployed these racialized distortions by bankrolling the idea of jihad, paying hundreds of millions of dollars for the recruitment of tens of thousands of foot soldiers, especially low-paid workers from the Arab world, to be armed and trained in Pakistan to fight the Soviets in Afghanistan. According to anthropologist Mamdani, the U.S. government, quote, hoped to unite a billion Muslims worldwide around a holy war against the Soviet Union. The Islamic world had not seen an armed jihad for centuries, but now the CIA was determined to create one, which it did with the substantial assistance of a Saudi named Osama bin Laden. You know the rest, right? These new alliances, these efforts forged new alliances between Muslims from a range of countries who fought for U.S. national interests in the name of jihad. 
Back in the U.S., the media and government simply took the same degrading stereotypes that had been applied to Arabs and expanded them to Muslims and Iranians. Of course, you know, Americans don't know the difference between an Iranian and Arab, so it's just a point I have to make. But uh, the per- group of persons monolithically framed as violent terrorists was thus enlarged six times, sixfold, from 384 million to 1.6 billion, and now firmly embraced South Asians. As I said, it was given a name, Middle Easterners. It was represented as brown-skinned, barbaric, angry, misogynist, or subservient, depending on the gender, as a people whose main and perhaps only purpose in life was to be anti-American. With the broader notion of Middle Easterner now formed and deployed, the set of visible identifiers associated with the threat expanded beyond brown skin to include Appearances associated with Islam, modest dress, hijab, beard, a written script. You know, people have been, even now, they're taking off airplanes if they see like an Arabic script um, and certain types of names. So all I just have described to you um, was being written about. I took this information from the published record. And so the question is... Why didn't race scholars pay any attention to it? Well, that scholarship was also censored. Um, No journal would publish work on Arab Americans and race. And I mean, I went through this so I could speak from my own experience. Uh, You could teach about it. You couldn't get published in mainstream journals. You couldn't talk at conferences on race. So Arab Americans, whether they were political scientists or people like me who study race, had to publish, Arab Americans had to form their own presses, like Medina University Press and AEUG Press and Institute for Palestine Studies Press and Interlink Press. And these were the only places we could get published. Um, so since this work was like in out markets, nobody read it, which, I, which leads to the myth that started in 2001, right? Because this whole period of history is, is buried Towards the end of the 20th century, scholars of Arab Americans from a range of disciplines then began deploying the notion of invisibility. The Arab American experience was invisible, and scholarship on Arab Americans was invisible. Scholar Saliba argued that dominant discourses about race rendered Arab Americans invisible, even though they were the victims of racist policies. Anthropologist Neighbor, one of the first scholars to break into a mainstream journal, said that neocolonialism created this imagined conflated character positioned inferior to white Americans to justify U.S. interventions in the Middle East. Okay, so I'll skim through this because I, I actually 911 is next, but that's, that's actually the shortest part of this talk. Um, so why didn't race scholars pay attention to what was going on? There's a number of explanations. Arabs were still officially white why they would get stuck with that because they know that race is socially constructed. I don't know, but uh, Arab Americans were complex. I mean, they, the timing of the racialization was off. They were not poor. And in some place, and I remember talking about Arab Americans and race, like, I don't know, a couple decades ago, and I would get shouted down by people from the inner city who considered Arab American merchants racist, right? People of color. So there were a lot of complications to this story. When you're invisible, what's happening to you is unseen, and that is, was the goal of this racial project, and it applied here, and it applies here, there, okay, you know, what the, applies globally. Uh, 
Invisibility prior to 911 has enabled scholars to state that Arab and Muslim racialization started after 911, placing causality for the treatment endured by millions of U.S. Arab Muslims and Asians, not in a racial project, but in the actions of 19 brown-bodied men. Um, what the post-911 narrative does is explain suggest similarities with the project of white supremacy. It places ultimate blame on non-white bodies for ongoing violence and profiling. We enter the 21st century with these apparatuses in place to be formally named the war on terror. When these 19 men, Arab Muslim men on temporary visas, attacked the World Trade Center and the Pentagon, murdering 3,000 people, the apparatuses were already in place for interpreting these as symptoms of collective Arab Muslim depravity, uh, setting in motion waves of hate crimes, swift calls for retribution. There was a war in Iraq. Iraq had nothing to do with 911, but all the same, right? Doesn't matter what countries picked. Um, John, Attorney General John Ancroft make a speech that Arabs and, Arabs and Muslims were hiding in our cities, plotting and planning new attacks in this reign of terror. Um, and the first person murdered in a hate crime after 911 was a Sikh living in California. So that's how generic the stereotype is. Post-911 retribution targeted a sloppy mix of brown bodies, bodies clothed in the symbols of Islam, and bodies whose names, like Ahmed or Muhammad, invoked threats. Women in hijab bore the brunt of hate crimes, while brown men were the targets of government policies. Uh, surveillance policies already in place were simply stepped up. The government instituted at least 37 known national security initiatives that included mass arrests, secret detentions, detention of material witness, solitary confinement, closed hearings, secret evidence, eavesdropping, FBI visits, wiretapping, seizures of property, airport profiling. I won't take time. There's a lot of them. None of the government's extreme measures, none of these policies produced any terrorists but they ruined plenty of lives. More than 13,000 men were slated for deportation from the United States because of special registration. None charged with connections to terrorism because you have, if, you're, if there's a charge, you're going to be held to trial. These are people who were found innocent after investigation. Um, despite these extraordinary efforts, not a single person was convicted of a terrorist crime out of more than 80,000 special registration, 5,000 preventive detentions, tens of thousands of FBI interviews. New NYU's, NYU, yeah, Center on Law and Security found upon review of terror-related cases that there were almost no convictions. So we're talking hundreds of thousands of, peoples, of people who've been interviewed or arrested. Nothing. So racial profiling and surveillance activities that began formally under Richard Nixon's Operation Boulder continue to this day. Um, Obama's Countering Violent Extremism Program developed ostensibly to prevent hates, all types of hate violence, but largely focused on Muslims is under scholarly scrutiny. Trump's public vilification of Muslims and Syrian refugees deployed these old themes of inherent violence and civilizational inferiority, and his Muslim ban has institutionalized these ideas in immigration policy. However, unlike before 9-1-1, at least these practices of the war and terror are now part of mainstream scholarship. I have one little paragraph here on the um, what I call the domestic domestication of um, 
Islamophobia, you know, these anti-Sharia groups and uh, anti-mosque campaigns. So they kind of are a, a new prong of this project, which is like local nativists and nationalists and many of them supporters of Donald Trump are, you know, increasing the anti-Muslim uh, sentiment in the U.S. Hate crimes have now exceeded post-9-1 levels. And the number of anti-Muslim hate groups tripled in 2016 and further expanded in 2017. In conclusion, um, consistent with Omen Winant's racial formation theory, I argue that a racial project was undertaken through the linkage between structure and signification that extended meaning to previously unclassified Arab Americans by making up Arabs as a monolithic race of violent and misogynist barbarians who required surveillance and control. Oh, yep, sorry about that. I further argue that the notion of Middle Easterner was developed when the interests of domination necessitated, necessitated enlarging the, the alleged threatening group to include Muslims and South Asians. Over time, and particularly after 911, the ideological component of the racial project increasingly centered on a Muslim essence, yet the group so comprised remains visibly identified as Arab, South Asian, and Muslim. This war on terror racial project runs parallel to and intersects with the historic U.S. domestic racial project of white supremacy and with patriarchy, producing everyday experiences of subordination that vary by race and gender. Scholarly study of these intersections has stimulated new interest in the historic linkages between Islam, U.S. American blackness and anti-blackness, and white supremacy. The goal of this racial project was not to produce a racial group. That was the tactic. The goal was to silence dissent and manufacture consent for U.S. policies in the Arab world and the broader Middle East. And it's important to understand this direct relationship. Because the silence, the apparatuses that silence Arab and Muslim Americans and their allies also silence concern of the death of people over here that are caused by American interests. As with all people of color in the U.S., the value of Arab, Muslim, and South Asian lives, wherever they are, is simply not processed in the same way as it is for white Americans. Thank you. You've been listening to a download from the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. You'll find more information on our website, www.nyuad.nyu.edu institute.